Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This episode is titled, Not Really an Apology. Anyone who embarks on a study of church history and starts at the beginning will soon run into a pile of church leaders known as the Church Fathers. They're often divided into the Anti-Nicene and Post-Nicene Fathers, meaning the church leaders who lived anti or before the first great ecumenical church council at Nicaea in A.D. 315, and those who lived during and after it, thus the prefix post. The fathers can further be broken down into three groups, based on the primary focus of their writings. Those three groups are the apostolic fathers, the apologists, and the theologians. While there's some overlap time-wise, we can say that generally the period of the Apostolic Fathers was from the end of the 1st to the mid-2nd century. And as we've seen in a previous episode, the Apostolic Fathers weren't apostles, they were followers and students of the apostles and had a close relationship with them. Then from the mid-2nd through the end of the 3rd century is the time of the Apologists. They're called this because their work focused on defending the faith against attacks from both without and within. Following the apologists were the theologians, who provided leadership for the church from the beginning of the 4th through the 6th centuries. Their work hammered out precisely what it was that Christians believed regarding some of the more complex aspects of the faith. In the previous episode, we considered the apologist Justin Martyr, who wrote two important defenses of the faith and addressed them to two Roman emperors, Antoninus Pius and Marcus Aurelius. Now we're going to look at another important apologist, Irenaeus. But before we dive into his story, let me be clear for those unfamiliar with the term apologist. The modern English word apology means to say you're sorry for having made uh, an error, a mistake, uh, done something wrong to someone. It's an acceptance of blame and a way to restore goodwill. Well, that's not what the apologists gave. They had nothing to be sorry for. The word comes from the Greek word apologia, which was a formal defense of one's position. In fact, it was a legal word. And apologia was something that an attorney would prepare as they went into court. It was an attempt to prove something by use of evidence and reason. And that's why today apologetics is the term that's used for defending the faith. The tradition of apologetics goes all the way back to the earliest days of church history when the Christian faith was emerging into a hostile pagan world. The apologists were those early church fathers, usually pastors of local churches, who wrote up formal works to be given to Roman officials, people like the emperor or maybe a provincial governor, explaining why persecution was an inappropriate reaction to the followers of Jesus. One of the premier apologists, who ends up being one of the earliest theologians as well, was named Irenaeus the Bishop of Lyon in France. His career was spent battling the dangerous threat of Gnosticism. Born in Asia Minor, probably in the city of Smyrna about AD 135, he was influenced by the Apostolic Father and the student of the Apostle John, Polycarp. Irenaeus was deeply affected by his mentor, saying that he wrote down what he had learned, not on paper, but on his heart. After attending school in Rome, Irenaeus went out as a missionary to southern Gaul. He served as an elder in a couple of churches and witnessed the heavy persecution borne by the believers there during the reign of Marcus Aurelius. It was during this time that the Montanist controversy broke out. 
We talked about them in a previous episode, and here's where we find out that it was an issue that many churches weighed in on. One faction thought that the Montanists ought to be declared heretical and banned, but others found their theology aberrant, but not rising to the level of heresy. They thought that the Montanists ought to be reined in, not kicked out. The churches of southern Gaul were of this second persuasion, and in AD 178, they sent Irenaeus to Rome to voice their opinion. When Irenaeus returned to Lyon, he had learned that its bishop was martyred, and so he was selected to fill his place. From then until his death 14 years later, Irenaeus stayed a busy man. He was a prolific writer, a tireless pastor, and even a missionary. Irenaeus proved to be a great asset for the church in the later 2nd century and provided a solid foundation for the church over the next two centuries. While he struggled with the native language of Gaul, he was a master of Greek. He was adept at using Greek culture, language, and thought forms in the defense of the faith and helped lay a philosophical and theological foundation that later church leaders drew on. And don't forget, Irenaeus' connection back to Christ was close, though he lived toward the end of the second century. His teacher was the long-lived Polycarp, who'd been the disciple of the aged John, a direct disciple of Jesus. This helps put his emphasis on apostolic succession in perspective. This became a key concept in his writings. Irenaeus didn't argue for some kind of dynastic principle in church leadership, so much as the idea that the faith itself, that is, its doctrines, tenets, values, and mission, were all drawn from the original apostles, passed on to their followers, and then passed on to the next generation, and so forth. Church leaders obtained authority only to the degree that they were loyal to the foundation the apostles had laid. Their authority was derived directly from their adherence to what had already been given. It did not originate with them or merely with the office that they held. Okay, personal comment alert. What follows is my personal commentary. Church leaders today would do well to remember this when they're pressed to compromise with the world on moral and spiritual issues. The authority of pastors and church leaders comes from one place, from God. It does not adhere to some office in the church. A title means nothing, no matter how big the hat or fancy the label. God gives authority to fulfill his calling and mission for that person. But when they step outside that role, they possess no real authority. The authority of the minister is derived and directly proportional to their loyalty to the apostolic message and mission. And that's what Irenaeus was saying in his writings. While there was an extension of this principle into the realm of church leadership, Irenaeus didn't advocate some kind of spiritual dynastic principle whereby church leadership and hierarchy was bequeathed by one leader to the next. Irenaeus was a fierce opponent of both error and schism, and he was probably the most orthodox of the Antinicene fathers. It may be of interest to some listeners that Irenaeus, along with the church father Papias, and most of their contemporaries were premillenarian in their eschatological views. Those views were later abandoned by the church as being considered too Jewish in their origin. While laboring hard for the spread and defense of the faith on earth, Irenaeus was, quote, gazing up into heaven, unquote, like the original disciples, anxiously awaiting for the return of the Lord and the establishment of his kingdom. 
Irenaeus was the first of the church fathers to make a full use of the New Testament. While the Gnostics that he spent so much of his time refuting wanted to carve up the Bible, whittling it down to just a handful of texts, Irenaeus referred to all four Gospels and nearly all of the epistles as Scripture. Though he had great zeal for essential doctrine, Irenaeus was tolerant towards differences over the non-essentials. He urged the Bishop of Rome to lighten up in his demands about how and when people could celebrate Easter. Two major works of Irenaeus have survived, Against Heresies and The Demonstration of the Apostolic Preaching. Against Heresies was written uh, right about the year A.D. 185 while he was Bishop of Lyon. It's aimed at the error of Gnosticism that we've already considered. The book has five parts. Book one is a historical sketch of the various Gnostic sects alongside a statement of Christian faith. Then in book two, we find a philosophical critique of Gnosticism. Book three is a scriptural critique of it, while book four answers Gnosticism from the very words of Christ himself. It all wraps up with book five, which is a vindication of the resurrection against Gnostic arguments denying it. Irenaeus has been called the father of church dogmatics, because he sought to formulate the principles of Christian theology and provided an exposition of the church's beliefs. That was especially clear in his other writing, The Demonstration of the Apostolic Preaching. There, he laid down the premise that the Christian faith finds its revelation and authority in the scriptures. And, as I said, he refers to both the Old and New Testaments to prove this, quoting from all but four of the New Testament books. Irenaeus is an important figure for the development of Christian theology because in his battle with Gnosticism, he lays down the principle of what's called recapitulation. That is, that Jesus Christ is the core and the essence of all true theology. He is both creator and redeemer. What was lost in Adam is regained in Christ. What Irenaeus says about Jesus, as drawn from the scriptures, would be used later by the theologians when they had their discussions and debates over the nature of Christ. Beside these two works we know were authored by Irenaeus, there are several other fragments and some works that are attributed to him by people like Eusebius. We're going to skip reviewing all of those except one that deserves mention. It's Irenaeus's epistle to Florinus. He writes a friend who'd at one time served with him in the ministry. In fact, they'd both grown up in the faith together side by side at the feet of Polycarp. Florinus became an elder at the Church of Rome, but he ended up being deposed when he embraced Gnosticism. Irenaeus writes, reminding him touchingly of their friendship and past. You can hear the ache in his words that someone who'd been so close and so clear on the teachings of God could just throw it all aside for the silliness of the error of the Gnostics. Irenaeus dissects that error so skillfully, it's difficult to imagine that anyone could read the letter and not return to the faith of his youth. Sadly, we don't know what came of Florinus. As we end this episode, let me once again encourage you to stop by both the Sanctorum.us website and the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page, where we'd really like it if you could leave a comment. Hey, let us know where you live so we can get an idea of just how wide the CS family is. If you enjoy the podcast, why not recommend it to your friends? It turns out that is by far how most people find out about Communio Sanctorum, by word of mouth. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. 
For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.